1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. And today, we are joined by Todd Friedenberg. Todd, as some of you may recall, joined us about a year ago, right as the pandemic hit the world and the real estate markets. With his extensive background in the commercial mortgage industry, Todd provides very important insights into what is going on in the debt markets and how that affects investing in real estate really quickly todd's background todd is the president and principal of q10 vista commercial mortgage group with over 30 years of commercial real estate experience in both debt and equity financing brokerage and valuation consulting he was previously vice president with ge commercial finance and column financial of credit Suisse, and has served as a commercial mortgage banker since 1990 with various firms in Nashville. Todd has originated over a billion of debt and equity over his career. In our conversation today, we touch upon what did lenders do? Since last year, we talked about what are lenders going to do now that the pandemic has hit. We also talk about the way that different sectors within real estate have been impacted, what's gone on for the past year. Then we jump into a deeper discussion about agency debt. What is it? Talking about mezzanine debt, understanding that, as well as the newer vehicles like debt funds, which are sometimes used in lieu of agency debt. So in general, it's a very deep discussion about different ways of structuring debt for commercial real estate projects. Finally, we touch on interest rates and inflation. What is going on with those? what might happen economically, how they impact the commercial real estate industry, and investing. This is an important conversation to be having at this time as we revisit what's gone on the past year and take a look at what might happen on a going forward basis. Todd, welcome back to the podcast.
2: Thanks, glad to be here.
1: Yeah. So last year when, you know, when we had our first episode with you, it was right after the pandemic had reached a bit of a peak. Everything was shut down. The property and real estate markets were certainly shut down. Everything was frozen And we talked a lot with you, given your background about what was the expectation of what lenders would do. So I think, you know, a year on, it would be great to get your perspective on what did lenders actually do? What did the pandemic really do to, to the commercial real estate market from your, from your perspective?
2: Yeah. Well, boy, where to begin, you know, I don't think certainly every sector was impacted, but when we first started talking about this, it was right at the beginning of COVID, and everything was shutting down. And I had borrowers calling me, asking to talk to lenders, specifically borrowers that owned retail centers, predominantly some hotels, and and a few on a few occasions, some multifamily, but really not, really mostly retail and hotels. And they were, you know, certainly concerned over where they're, how it was affecting their income. And so they wanted to reach out to the lenders and ask for some relief in the end. And and we service really, I I guess I'll lump in our whole, our whole Q10 capital group where we service, I think it's somewhere around 12 or $13 billion of predominantly life insurance company and, and some CMBS loans. And it was such a small percentage of loans that we actually had to work out some, really relief in the form of interest only payments there was there were virtually no forbearance and so it was really you know for about 30 to 60 days it was a little scary but then it just sort of evened out and i, I don't think that's the case on a lot of cmbs properties which we i just didn't see because borrowers were dealing directly with CMB, cmbs servicers so that was a little tougher especially on the hotel front But, I mean, in a nutshell, it just, you know, I mean, it was certainly problematic, but but wasn't near the amount of issues that we had expected to experience. And I would say that would be not just my experience locally or or throughout the Southeast, but through our whole Q10 Capital Group. We just didn't see the huge amount of issues that we thought might be forthcoming.
1: What do you think was the factor or a set of factors that allowed what everybody was so afraid of not to happen. Like, you know, there was that huge amount of fear. And like you said, like there were obviously some properties, hotel and and shopping center retail was hit the hardest, but, you know, I think everybody was really concerned about even on the multifamily side and will people pay their rents? And what are some of the factors that, that basically didn't come true because, you know, we're busier than ever, you know, people, people are out there doing deals, buying transactions, you know, w- what, what changed to allow the market to basically like roll forward?
2: Well, I'm not so sure but was a change. I think first and foremost, the structure of most of these loans, uh, at least on the life company side, and even on the, the agency, Fannie and Freddie side were since, since the prior recession, you know, when we came out of. 2009, 2008, 2009, underwriting was uh, much more stringent. I think loans were more conservative. So from the get go, you had uh, a much better base where you weren't over leveraged. And so that clearly helped to keep uh, debt service coverage ratios, although they did drop, but still above one, right? And in most cases, well above that. So the, you know, the, the issue with retail, you had big box retailers that basically were not paying rent and and negotiated deals, or in some cases just told their landlords we're just not paying rent. And so it took a while to work through that, but but it was never significant enough, at least in the loans that I saw, because I'm sure there were plenty out there that maybe didn't make it because they had two or three. Big box retailers uh, that weren't paying rent and and maybe there was a, a shortage of cash flow in the partnership and they couldn't keep it afloat. But for the most part, there was enough money there and there was the leverage was low enough that they were able to make it through. I can't really speak to hotels because I don't have enough in my portfolio or any that really I had personal experience with where they where they got into trouble. But there was not the near amount of foreclosures or issues on hotels. And you can see that now in the fact that there's really not. Everyone thought there were going to be all these opportunities to go in and buy these hotels that just didn't make it. And and the market just isn't seeing that, at least not yet. I know in Nashville, throughout COVID, they were building new hotels. So in markets like Nashville, that has experienced really tremendous growth. And and we'll continue to do so as we come out of COVID. Those hotels I think are gonna do fine. Now, you know, in other areas of the country where that may not be the case, I think we're gonna see issues, but I don't think they're gonna be the major issues that the market foresaw at the beginning of this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think what we saw happen at the beginning of COVID is kind of what happens anytime some you know, externality like this comes into play, right? And like, even if you just think about how people fly around the country, right? Like in, in March, people were canceling flights, they weren't getting on planes. And then in April, it was like one person in a row, and then it was no middle seat. And like the last flight I, I was on was packed to the brim, right? And, you know, I think that is the case, the, the analogy, at least for the asset classes that have fared well you know during the the pandemic you know multifamily being one of them right particularly you know class b workforce housing where you know collection rates have remained where they have been historically but then if we transition to the other side you know the, the hospitality the the retail even even office it, when you're in a lender's shoes how are you now changing the way you look at at underwriting a retail deal is it just about adding in you know, more reserves? Are you hesitant to provide as much leverage? Do you know, do you question the the kind of cash flow and revenue projections? Like what's the new state of play for those asset classes that were on the wrong side of COVID?
2: Well, I think, and I've experienced a few recently on, on some refinances and new finances that we're working on. For the most part, at least my life company lenders and we represent. 30 or 40 different lenders out there. So I could probably say as the, the life company market as a whole is much more conservative and, and I would say retail, which which by the way, was not a favorite product prior to COVID either because retail was experiencing some issues you know even prior to covid with store closures and reduction of store sizes and of course with with the amazon the amazons of the world you know it's just affecting the brick and mortar retailer so we were already seeing somewhat of a transition in in retail but to answer your question Dan i think just the the underwriting is much more conservative yeah there is typically some sort of reserve maybe not a debt service reserve that we're seeing on multifamily which which we can get to that in a minute because I think that will eventually phase out in the near term, but just lower leverage is the biggest thing. I think from a standpoint of if, if lenders were maybe doing 70 to 75% on retail pre-COVID, you know, now they probably don't want to go more than 65% in most cases. If you're, you know, a grocery anchored retailer with some pretty solid tenants, then I think that's going to be the most favored retail product, but an anchored retail and just big box, you know, non-grocer anchored retail is, is going to be much more difficult to finance at a higher leverage. And, and, and spreads are higher on that product type, significantly higher than you know, multifamily or industrial.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about multifamilies and what was going on in that Market, because I know that when you know when we were able to finally start you know investing again, because you know we froze too for several months, and you know that all of a sudden there was this at a minimum twelve month interest reserve. Can so can you talk about that a little bit? Like, what is it? Why did they put it in place? Just just so that you know our our listeners are, are getting a good sense of what it's all about, because I know a lot of our investors started to see that line item. In the underwriting, and you know, it, you know, it's it's a big chunk of money. So, can you talk about that a little? It
2: is. It's a decent size reserve, especially if it's a much larger deal. And so, really, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were the ones that you know were, were really seeing this on the agency side. And at first, it was kind of a twelve to eighteen month, what they call the COVID or debt service reserve. And at the end of that period, if you were maintaining for the prior three months, a debt service coverage of, say, 120 or 125, then they would release the reserves. And we're just coming into that period now. If you financed, right, you know, back in April or May, where we're, we're going to see the effect of that. And that, But in general, today, we're seeing still a debt service reserve anywhere from six to 12 months. I'm not seeing many on the 18-month side. If the, if the loan amount is more than 6 million it's typically going to be a 6 month 6 to 8 month reserve and and under that typically 12 months and and of course you can borrow that it factors into your into your leverage and so a lot of borrowers are just borrowing that reserve which they'll end up getting back at, you know hopefully at within the the 6 to 12 month term so it hasn't had it hasn't really put a damper I don't think on um, certainly volume was down for several reasons and and I would attribute part of that to the debt service reserve but interest rates were so low people were taking advantage of still financing in the last probably 2 to 3 months we've seen spreads increase about 50 to 60 basis points but rates are still sub 4 and and I think volume will be there so you know and and yeah so that's that's kind of the gist of, of what's happening there on the on the multifamily front.
1: And do you expect that that the interest reserves will phase out? Or yeah. do you think people yeah?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, they're they will, it's a question of when, which is kind of the weekly question right now. I've got several agency deals I'm working on, and and it's always the first question my borrower asks is, you know, mm-hmm. at, at what point should we wait? Should we do it now? And nobody knows. The agencies really aren't given an indication. I think we're going to see the stud service reserve at least through probably summer or even you know through through the fall before we see that go away. As long as demand is still there, I don't think that there's a reason for them to say, "Hey, we're going to we're going to not have it."
0: So, Todd, can we take a quick step back? Right? I know we often talk about you know, debt financing in, in very specific detail. But as I'm an investor, right, and I get uh an offering memo from from alpha and I I look at the the summary of the debt, I'm usually gonna see either, you know, Freddie Fannie agency debt or I'm gonna see some type of, of debt fund. Can you just talk a little bit about the core or key characteristics of each and and maybe some of the, the pros and cons and why a sponsor might choose one over the other, you know, rate aside.
2: Sure. And I think I don't have a lot of experience on the debt fund side, but so let's push that one aside for a minute. But I, I think that it really depends on the product and, and what the objective is, right? If it's a long term hold, then they're trying to typically leverage up and lock in up a low rate for a long period of time. And so, you know, agency debt, if it's a multifamily deal, agency, agency debt's very attractive. Life company debt is attractive as well if they're not, if maybe they're not going to leverage up as much. They both have similar prepayment requirements in terms of yield maintenance. So there's there's always going to be some sort of a prepayment penalty. And then, you know, shorter term, you're, you're not as impacted by that prepayment penalty And and rates are still low, you can get some interest only typically on a, you know, if they're doing a three or five year deal, sometimes you can get interest only for that entire term, and especially on a value add transaction, where you're going to go through leasing the property, renovating, leasing it up. And so it's, there's an advantage to having that those interest only payments during that period before you put permanent debt on it, or if they're going to, you know, maybe they plan on selling it down the road so they don't want to get hit with a prepayment penalty. I mean, I, I think that's probably the first thing that a borrower or a sponsor is going to look at in terms of, you know, it's the timing. how long are they going to be in the deal? And I think that's going to factor into which way they go on the debt.
0: Yep, that definitely makes sense i think what we've seen across our portfolio recently you know particularly sponsors who are looking at those three to five year terms they they seem to be favoring debt fund execution and at, at present
2: yeah and that makes sense because a lot of these debt funds they can go in and actually borrow just to do in kind of a bank loan with a bridge or, or or a bridge loan and then you know some sort of mezzanine piece You could do it all you know within the debt fund you might pay a little bit more than maybe an agency or or a life company but you've got more flexibility with that debt fund which makes a lot of sense especially when you're gonna you know know you're gonna exit that deal or or put some different type of debt on the deal within you know a shorter three to five year term and most of the most of the deals That I'm involved with are longer term, which is why I don't have as much experience on the debt fund side, because we're doing typically, especially with interest rates where they're at, I mean, I'm doing 10 to 20 year deals and and we're locking in that rate non-recourse in most cases for, you know, up to 20 years or more, you know, in some cases, even more.
1: So question who, just so that we can kind of get into it a little bit, who raises a debt fund?
2: What, where does that money come from? Well, I think probably most of the debt funds that I've been in with, uh, have some sort of institutional component and it may be a life company or, or someone along the way that's investing a significant amount of money into the fund. But then it can also be, you know, high net worth, uh, individuals, family offices, things like that, that are contributing to, to investing in that fund.
1: Right, and they're just looking for the interest income out of it for the most part.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like a, a real estate deal. It's just on a, a debt deal as opposed to actually owning the real estate. They're they they own the debt.
1: Right, right, right. And you you mentioned something before. You you mentioned a Mez piece. Can we just touch on that and like expand on it just a little bit? Like, what what does that mean? Like, what is mezzanine debt, and when it's used in a like you know in a commercial real estate structure in a capital stack? What does that do in terms of the risk profile of a deal?
2: Well, I mean, it depends on the deal, but let's take a multifamily deal, for example. A lot of times we'll see leverage up to, you know, let's say 75% and maybe they're trying to get to 80. And so that extra 5% piece on the capital stack might be a, a mezzanine debt that is going to be a higher interest rate. But as it factors into the overall deal, It's such a small component that, you know, you might have, let's say your agency debts at three and a half or 375 and you do a MES piece at 10%, your blended rate is still pretty low. And so it, I mean, it does increase the risk, right? Because you've got additional debt to service, but, but typically the MES piece is a much shorter term and it's going to get taken out along the way, either through a refinance or a sale. And, uh, the most, most MES debt is, you know, two to three years and the, and the, the MES lender typically wants to get out as soon as possible. So, those deals are structured, you know, with fairly low risk, depending again, depending on the deal, but, but they're not the first loss piece. So, or they are the first loss piece. So they're, you know, they, they want to be sure that they're got plenty of coverage and it's not over leveraged in order to get payback. back.
1: Right. And tendentially, is it, is it secured or unsecured?
2: Well, they're in a, they're typically in a, in a second position behind the the primary lender. So it is to a certain extent, but if, if the deal, if there's not, if, if something goes south on the deal and there's not enough to take out the uh, first lien, then uh, there may be nothing left on the, on the back end.
1: Right. Yeah. And I only bring it up because I've, I've seen that a little bit and for any investor that's listening and that is seeing it, I think it's important to understand that, that mezzanine is a debt position and it comes ahead of equity and, and to like be careful of what your total leverage is on a deal. Cause it might look like 65 on your, on your first lien. And then you have mezz that'll take it to 80, 85. And, and, it, it, I think it's just really important for people to understand the, the purpose of it and how it can actually impact an equity investor and their risk in a deal.
2: Well, I think in most cases too, you're, the purpose of the MES debt is maybe you're doing a, it's a value add transaction and you're going to go in and do some renovations and, and increase rents, right? So as you're as you're renovating units and leasing those units up at a higher rent, you're able to, your, your leverage is actually coming down, right? So your, your debt coverage is going, is going up. And so the risk, you know, as you, as you work through the renovation and the lease up, your risk goes down. And as long as that's going to plan, then in most cases, I, I've, I've yet, and I've been doing this a long time. I, I've not seen a deal go south that had some MES debt on it, but most of the MES debt, that we've done is, you know, been been a lower leverage. You know, we typically not more than than seventy five to eighty percent on the debt.
1: Interesting. Thank you for that. Yeah, I just thought it'd be interesting to kind of dig into different different types of debt sure. in, in deals because we're we're seeing that. I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about probably questions that are top of a lot of people's minds, especially these days, as we saw the stock market take a bit of a wobble with inflation fears that, that kind of came through the media. Can we talk about that a little bit from, from your perspective and and what you're hearing and seeing, and specifically if we can start with if inflation goes up, you know, if, when and, and how much, how does that really affect real estate investors, real assets, and specifically commercial
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, and that is the real question. You know, it's not if it's when, because I think with all the money, all the stimulus money coming in to the economy and interest rates have been just, you know, at rock bottom, I think ultimately we're going to, we're going to see that inflation at some point. I, I don't think it's going to be hyperinflation that maybe some people are projecting, but I am not an economist. I'm far from it. So, but yeah, I think in general, I think that the real estate market is gonna fare well throughout what, what we might consider an inflationary period in the in the next you know few years. I I really don't think we're gonna see that until 2023 maybe, and and I'm not sure what that's gonna look like, but I think you know. The economy will continue to do well. Interest rates, uh, the Fed's gonna, gonna try to keep interest rates under control. And and rents will probably continue, you know, we're gonna see an increase in rents as the economy rolls on, especially coming out of COVID. So I don't I don't think we're gonna see a negative effect of inflation on, on real estate going forward.
1: And does it does it normally or or not? Like if inflation goes up asset values go up as well. So is there a correlation with interest rates just from a technical, just, you know, knowledge-based perspective? Like if interest, or I'm sorry, if inflation goes up, do real assets also rise in value normally? Is that, Uh,
2: you know, it depends on, on the type and amount of inflation. Right. But I Mm -hmm. think if, if rents, you know, if inflation is causing rental rates to go up, you know whether it's a multifamily deal or, or a retail deal or an industrial deal, whatever whatever the case may be, then yeah, but you know yes, that would be true. but, but I think you'd also need cap rates to stay the same and, and not see or in some cases we're even seeing some cap rate compression still. So I think if you look back, it's interesting I, I looked at a chart recently that, that went back 10 years and looked at the 10-year treasury yield over those over those 10 years and and interest rates in general and the spread is is pretty much stayed the same i mean we've seen little ups and downs and so i think we're going to continue to see that so i don't think we're going to see cap rates necessarily inflating through an inflationary period but again you know who knows how much inflation we're going to experience, and it's just hard to say. And I don't know enough about you know the economy and and economics in general and inflation to 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 sound like I'm intelligent enough to know what's going to happen to inflate you know with inflation. But but in general, I, what I've seen you know over the over the past twenty or thirty years, yeah, I think we're going to be in in okay shape. You know, barring any type of tax changes or anything like that, which certainly are. It, would affect real estate
0: so as someone who has been in the space for a long time you know historically customarily interest rates and cap rates have kind of moved together right and and there was a period you know in the last few years where we diverged from that for for a bit but given where interest rates are you know today you know how do you and really the only direction that they can go you know being being up do you expect to continue to see a, a divergence between cap rates and interest rates you think they'll move together unpredictable like what what's your perspective
2: well the easy answer would be it's unpredictable since you threw the word out there dan but yeah i really think that we're going to see in the long run a similar spread that's why you know if you go back 10 years and look at it It's it's been uh, a pretty similar spread between the two, with some blips here and there, right? And especially in the last few years, we've actually have seen some cap rate compression. But I feel like that's going to be the the case going forward, at least for the next you know several years, that we're gonna we're gonna see that same spread. And I think interest rates are going up. I don't think we're gonna see huge you know increases in, in rates. I think, you know, over the last, since really the beginning of the year, we've seen a pretty significant increase in treasury yields, which the market's kind of built in what they think is gonna happen with inflation. And, and we've actually seen it settle back in a little bit over the last couple of days. So a couple of people I've talked to recently, economists at some life companies that we work with are basically saying that, you know, hey, it's that inflation had just kind of built in right now to, to where we are in the 10-year treasury. And some are saying maybe by the end of the year, we're, we're, we might see a 10-year treasury yield around, you know, 175 to 2, or we're at 150 right now. So I think we're going to just kind of bounce along between there for the rest of this year. And But going forward, it's just, it's so hard to say. I mean, there's there's so much of uh, this new stimulus package right now. And, and the big question is, you know, are people going to go out and, and spend that money and and juice the economy? Or are people going to save for a rainy day in fear that COVID may not be over and you know they may have to face this again? So I you know I just don't know kind of where we're going to head from here, I, but I think we're going to we're going to find out fairly quickly once they get this stimulus money out and then we see how fast it trickles into the economy.
1: Yeah, I think that's like you're saying like those are the questions and the the on everyone's mind. And, you know, as we, you know, even as we at, at Alphas, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at deals that our sponsors are bringing in, there's a lot of activity and, and people are like, you know, we're still betting on the multifamily market. And I often wonder, because I, I've seen a couple of, of articles about this and here, let me, let me just see really quickly. It was the CFPB talking about housing insecurity and so the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and i just saying that, you know, there's still a, a lot of people that haven't paid their rent. So it was saying here, roughly 28% of residents in manufactured homes, 18% in multifamily and 12 in single family homes as renters are behind on their housing payments as of December, 2020. And we still haven't seen that fall out because we haven't, they haven't yet needed to pay. So is any of that priced in to into the markets, into the way that people are thinking about collections and and then also on a going forward basis, especially, you know, when we're when we're doing any kind of a value add where the idea is to raise rents and you know bring in new people. So what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think it's hopefully more of a short-term problem, but it but it's usually the first question that one of my lenders will ask is you know hey let's look at what have the collections been through COVID and especially you know the last thirty to sixty days, and so so it's an issue and it's it's at the forefront of underwriting, and with, which goes back to this this COVID reserve, right? Uh, Which is the whole reason why they put that in place, specifically because they know that there are some tenants that can't pay the rent. I think that there's enough demand out there that, I hate to say it, that, you know, if if people can't pay their rent and they have to leave, that that space will get filled up fairly quickly still. So, you know, that will continue. And I I think we're going to maybe see a little bit of blip there in terms of some of the you know what happens with some of those tenants but again that's why that debt service reserve has been there and uh, and that, that's part of the reason why they're going to continue to keep that in place uh, specifically on the multifamily front but i you know overall and maybe this is a change of subject a little bit but i think that when you look at commercial real estate last year transactions were down significantly because of covid so i think I was reading something recently. I mean, it was like 30 or 40%, you know, prior from the prior year in terms of actual transactions and, uh, and the same on the lending front. I know that from a life company standpoint, the mortgage bankers association, you know, did their, at their last survey, loan origination volume was down about 30% on the, this is on the commercial side. Right. So, and when I talk to my lenders they're you know, they all were down from the prior year. So I think coming out of COVID, real estate is really well positioned right now to, to have a pretty good comeback. And especially given the investment alternatives. So returns are are strong and we, we've not seen cap rates go up. And you know, the big question is going to be as as interest rates do go up, you know, what happens to the cap rate? You know, are we going to see that remain the same? And I think we've already addressed that. So, you know. I think there's a lot of good news on the horizon coming out of COVID right now for for commercial real estate and and specifically still for multifamily and in cities that are seeing a lot of growth and and on the industrial side as well, which are you know multifamily and industrial are probably the two favored products right now and with with retail and hotels probably being toward the bottom, but but I think there's still plenty of opportunities out there and I think we're going to see a lot of a lot of transaction volume over uh the next year or so.
1: Yeah. No, that's those are great insights. Those are great insights because for people who are, you know, they're wanting to invest, they they know that, you know, they've they're educated, they understand that real estate's a good, you know, it's a good, it's good to have as part of your portfolio. And and yet, you know, we hear a lot in the media, there's a lot of conflicting information, there's stock markets, there's crypto, there's volatility, there's like all there's all kinds of things. So I really appreciate that that grounded perspective on, you know, on what's, on what's going on and, and, you know, we're seeing it too with it, with so much transaction volume. I mean, we're seeing deals, so many deals coming, coming through and and we're really looking forward to bringing some of those out to, you know, to our investor network. So all in all, it really sounds like, you know, for, for people who really understand what they want in their portfolio, that, that it's still a good time to be, Investing in real estate and, and, you know, like you said, especially multifamily. And one last thing I wanted to touch on from a, from a market's perspective, because one of the biggest shifts has been the migration that was already happening before COVID. It, it just got exacerbated by covid and it seems to me that there are simply more opportunities in more markets where you could you know potentially even get more aggressive returns because those markets were previously unknown untapped so you know are you seeing with your lending business a lot more activity in even tertiary markets let alone secondary i mean nashville is top of the list these days so what are you seeing from the the market's perspective
2: Well, we do. We do a lot of business loan origination in Tennessee and throughout the Southeast. And so, you know, all the same cities that you probably hear about that are, you know, kind of the the hot cities Nashville and Charlotte and Austin. And those will continue and I think do very well, you know. I'm just not as experienced on the tertiary markets and I'm not sure how, you know, what those outliers are. Mm -hmm. And I think they're there. We're not seeing much. I'm just not seeing much activity there. I'm sure there is some, most of my lenders want to be in those larger, you know, growth cities to begin with. So, you know, I don't know that I have a great answer for that just in terms of uh, where those areas are, but, you know, as long as the, especially on the multifamily side, if you've got the right demographics, the demographic profile and, and enough people, in that MSA, that's where we're going to still continue to see uh, a lot of activity.
1: Would it be fair to say that you, that if you're an operator in going into a tertiary market or active there, you're probably getting your lending from a local bank
2: or like, yeah, most likely likely. And, and banks, depending on what part of the country you're in, you know, banks have been pretty aggressive in terms of going, I don't want to say aggressive in terms of leverage, but certainly in going longer term, you know, banks traditionally have been shorter term lenders and we're seeing more and more banks do, you know, 10 or even in some cases, 15 year deals. And so, I, I, you know, rates are still higher than some other lending sources like life companies or, or even, you know, agencies. But I think we're going to continue to see that trend as well.
1: Great. Great. Thank you. All right. And I know you answered this last year, but I'm going to ask you again. It's always a question we ask all our guests, which is, you know, what what does wealth mean to you? How do you define wealth in in your life?
2: Well, I mean, obviously family comes first right and so and I, and this is gonna sound yeah I mean I boy you really threw that one on me I have, I have to think about that for a Todd minute,
1: you but. don't listen to our podcast
2: no I you know I do of course I do but I yeah I think you know family and and is probably number one for me so and you know Diversification, I think, is as, as we talk about it from a monetary standpoint. Certainly I think diversification. So I feel lucky that I've been able to invest in real estate deals throughout my career, you know, some with alpha and and several other groups that I that I work with. And and have been fortunate to have that diversification along with you know the stock market and all the other, you know, alternatives. But but I think that that's where real wealth is created is, is through that diversification, I think. And and I think real estate provides a great opportunity for that.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And I love your, your, your answer too. It's like, you know, like family, like that was like the initial thing that came through because that's what's like so meaningful. So like, it's a beautiful, beautiful answer. And thanks also for defining wealth along the lines of, of real estate. I mean, like you said, like you've been in it for a long time and you understand its value. So it, it's great for everybody else to hear that as well. So thank you so much for um, spending some time with us today and really getting into all things, lending and markets and inflation and, you know, one year into the pandemic and we're going, we're going strong. So, you know, thanks for, you know, thanks for all your time today and all your insights.
2: Yeah. Well, thank you guys. I look forward to uh, circling back in you know, six or 12 months and seeing, If anything I said made sense, you know, at the end of the year, but hopefully we keep rocking along. So I enjoyed the conversation.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Todd. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode, and especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alpha And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.